welcome to this Discovering Music on Bach's Brandenburg Concertos with Richard Egar and the Academy of Ancient Music. Now, in 1721, Bach sent a group of six concertos to the Margrave of Brandenburg. He didn't really know him, he'd met him once, but he sent them as a sort of speculative CV, showing off his skills as a court composer to a possible new employer. As it was, the Margrave of Brandenburg filed them away in a library, and Bach never really heard from him again. It's quite likely they were never performed in full during Bach's lifetime, but they have become known as one of the pinnacles of Baroque repertoire. Now, let's try something. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and see what comes to mind when I say the word concerto. You're probably imagining a concert hall with an orchestra spread out across the stage and a pianist right at the front hammering away um, while the orchestra tries to get a word in edgeways. Or maybe you think of a figure like Paganini, the sort of romantic archetype of a lone violinist struggling against the rest of the world. Well, you're not wrong because that is what concerto means in the romantic sense of the word. But in Bach's day, the concerto meant something very, very different indeed. So I'm going to ask Richard to explain a little bit about what one would mean in Bach's day if one said concerto. It could actually mean a whole number of different things. The concerto came out of religious music in the 17th century. There would be concerti within an oratorio. Often these were with two contrasting groups of instruments, usually a small number of strings as a, a solo-ish group pitted against a larger group. But a concerto could also slightly later, just be a, a piece for three, four or five instruments, just using the form, the idea of the, um, a musical fingerprint, a bit of music which keeps coming back, which you recognise during the course of a movement, with solo bits in between, and then you would hear the, the fingerprint again. So it didn't really, like most things at this time, there was no standard. But the Concerto Grosso, by, by the turn of the 18th century, 1700, the Concerto Grosso had become more or less a piece for three solo string instruments, usually two violins and a cello, against a bigger string orchestra. But also at this time, the idea of a concerto grosso became a concerto for all sorts of different instruments, including wind instruments, which is what the Brandenburgs are. They are concertos for many different kinds of instruments. So it's very much a shifting and changing very form. So. And then, of course, we're going to be looking at three Brandenburg concertos, numbers two, four, and five. What you've just mentioned, a concerto grosso with soloists, including wind instruments, we'll hear in number two. By the time we get to number five, it's turning more into to the concerto with a solo instrument, a la Vivaldi, in a sense. More or less, although you must remember that even though one associates Brandenburg V with the harpsichord, it still is a concerto for a number of instruments, whereas Vivaldi's you know, concertos, a lot of them are for solo violin. The idea of the solo concerto through Vivaldi and his, his um, pushing of the, of the violin as a solo instrument, the idea of a concerto being for a solo, solo instrument was gaining more currency in the, at the beginning of the 18th century. Well, you mentioned the concerto grosso, of which Brandenburg number two is a great example. This juxtaposition between the group of soloists and the whole. So let's meet the four soloists. Bach is showing us a sort of perfect hand. Each instrument that we have here represents a different instrumental grouping or type. We have from the brass a trumpet, we have a woodwind recorder, we have a reed instrument, oboe, and we have the string represented by the violin. Now, in the opening movement, the music alternates between everyone playing together as a whole and the four soloists breaking off into solo and group passages. So let's hear the very beginning with just the four soloists, with the rest of you um, being quiet for a few bars, and then add in everyone together so we can hear the contrast between the solos and the group. Um. 
So we're hearing the four soloists as they mesh into the whole group. What happens next is that Bach introduces the four soloists one by one. The musical material that we've just heard there is shared throughout between the soloists and the ensemble alike. But the next phrase of music, as they each come in one by one, belongs exclusively to the soloists. The rest of the musicians never play this bit of material. Now, it comes in first with the violinist. And now the ensemble. And next, the violin and oboe. ensemble again and next we'll meet the oboe and the recorder and finally the recorder and trumpet together Now, Richard, one of the things that you pointed out to me when we first began to talk about this concerto was the high register of the four solo instruments and, indeed, of the whole ensemble. Tell me a bit about why Bach does that. I think it's, it's, it's very brilliant. The, the, the fact is you have, as you mentioned, all these four treble instruments represent one from each group of instruments going from the softest, more or less, recorder through the violin the indoor instruments, outdoor instruments here, the oboe and the trumpet. And it's an incredibly brilliant texture. It's a texture that Telemann was also investigating very much at, the, at this time, the, the brilliance of, of trebleness, and there's very little bass in the, in the ensemble as a whole. Let's just hear a little bit of a high note <laughs> playing from the recorder, first of all. That is very high for the treble recorder. And now this is even more cruel to ask David Blackadder, our trumpeter, to perform cold. I think he deserves a round of applause. Now, to accentuate that really bright and high sound even more, Bach has the violone, or double bass, play not its usual octave lower than the cello, which it normally does, but exactly the same note, an octave above where it would usually be. So just to get an idea of what that sounds like, let's hear how this music would be if the bass line was an octave lower than Bach writes it. What he actually writes is this. So it's much lighter and higher. Now, this is a classic concerto grosso, but let's not forget that Bach is sending the Margrave of Brandenburg his CV and showing off all of his talents. So although he's serving up quite a classic dish, he's going to add a twist of contemporary flavour. In the second movement, the trumpet drops out and we get a sort of a chamber piece, quite Italianate in style, designed for the drawing room on a Thursday afternoon. But a couple of things about this music signal that Bach is prepared to go along with new fashions. Now, the transition from the Baroque era, which we call it, to the classical was quite a slow process. But even in the 1720s, when Bach was putting these concertos together, the galant style, or rococo, were really starting to come into fashion. Now, Richard, how would you characterize the galant style? 
It was called the Galanskal, or the sensible style, and the idea of almost melodramatic emotion and melodramatic lines was coming in, the idea of sighing. It's a very almost over-colourful use of expressivity for expressivity's sake. And it's one of Joe's favourite words, I know, expression in music. But this was an incredibly important part. All through music history, you've seen, at a certain point, things become too complex and people try and clean it up again by doing something different. And this was, you know, Bach had become incredibly contrapuntal again by the beginning of the 18th century. Um, And they tried to get rid of that again and start with expression of line. And bass lines became much, much more simple. So there's this sort of concentration on expressivity of musical line. So we're going to hear in a moment just the beginning of the second movement, but so we have an idea of where this is sort of heading in music history. Could you just play us a little bit of Mozart? So we have an idea. Mozart on a harpsichord of this sort is... Oh, it, Mozart was a harpsichordist, don't forget. The piano was, was a relatively new invention, so Mozart probably played this piece on the harpsichord anyway. In this tuning and temperament? No, that's, that's a different <laughs> question, but here we go. Here's a little piece of Mozart that you might know. That's enough of that. Thank you. So let's just hear how that sort of bass line is starting to come in, even in Bach's second movement. This is, you probably heard the expression Alberti bass. As I've mentioned, one of the ways they, they cleared out the counterpoint, and the, to find harmony, you were just doing very gentle arpeggios with the left hand. So to simplify the accompaniment over which you could put a very expressive and interesting melody. The same, the same principle as the Mozart, just a chordal accompaniment in the bass. And you mentioned also the sighing figures. Can we hear a couple of the violin sighing figures? Just <laughs> so you'll be able to pick some of those out as you hear the second movement. is of course a man who favours balance in all of his music so having ditched the trumpet for the second movement he then lets the trumpet start the third movement on its own now Richard, you mentioned contrapuntal music, dense counterpoint, and here the art of fugue, according to Bach, really comes into play. Since this was a CV, it would be kind of crazy for Bach not to show how incredibly good he was at writing fugal music, one of the most sort of serious and disciplined forms. Although it's very complicated to write, and believe me, I've tried writing a fugue, they're very, very easy to listen to, because that melody that we just heard on the trumpet is what's known as the fugue's subject. And all you have to do is listen out for every single time that comes in in the music and it comes in in different voices or instruments and that's known as an entry of the subject and that's essentially how a fugue is put together. So let's hear the beginning of the third movement as each of the four solo instruments enter with that subject one after the other. First the trumpet. (laughs) 
coming on the oboe next. And next it's coming on the violin. And the next entry is on the recorder. And there you hear it coming in once again on the trumpet. Richard, before we hear the whole of the second Brandenburg Concerto, I wanted to ask about your choice to perform this music with one instrument only per part. We have mentioned this tension between the group and the whole, which by the time we get to the Romantic Concerto, we have a whole orchestra yeah. and one soloist only. But here we only have one instrument her part in the rest of the ensemble. It points out I mean, incredible, uh, I mean, it means that you can actually see a balance between, often between the solo group and the tutti group. They're actually the same size, more or less. Uh, and it, it's also possible to, uh, on stage to set them off against each other rather than the soloist being in front of a massive orchestra. So there's actually lots of an antiphonal effect to using one, one player per part. And actually the balance is also, I, I find, much, much better. Uh, this, this concerto is, is slightly unusual in that we have the tutti as a backing string band. They're behind the soloists in this concerto, which is unusual for, for, the, for this set. Uh, there is a theory that they were added later, but it, this, is quite, so this is quite unusual in, in this respect. But even so, you still have pretty much the same number of soloists as you do tutti. So it's, it's a very different idea, of, as say, of, of concerto. And this is, as far as we know, how Bach would have done this, not with a bumped-up tutti section. So you do have a sense of balance as well in, with this way of doing things. Thank you very much. So let's hear the whole of Brandenburg Concerto number two. Thank you. 
the Academy of Ancient Music, directed from the harpsichord by Richard Egar in the second Brandenburg Concerto by Bach, with four soloists, David Blackadder, trumpet, Gail Hennessy, oboe, Rachel Brown, recorder, and Pavlo Beznoziuk, violin. You're listening to Discovering Music on BBC Radio 3, recorded here in the Turner Sims Hall in Southampton, looking at three of Bach's Brandenburg concertos with the help of the Academy of Ancient Music and Richard Egar. Now, what we've just heard in the second Brandenburg Concerto is a great example of a classic concerto grosso. Next in the program, we're going to turn to the fourth concerto and then the fifth, and the definition of a concerto starts to broaden out more. Now, Richard, you described the other day concertos two, four, and five as each of them having their own sort of identity crisis. Number two that we've just heard is often mistaken for a trumpet concerto. Mm -hmm. And what is four often mistaken for? Uh, obviously a violin concerto. It's one of those, like Brandenburg V as a harpsichord concerto, it's, it has the lion's share of showing off in this piece and really very much a la Vivaldi, showing off for the sake of showing off. It's not musical, particularly musical material that the violin has to show off. It's just joy in playing fast and all that kind of stuff. And we know that Bach knew Vivaldi's concertos. He made transcriptions of quite a few of them, didn't he? He did for keyboard, very many of them, actually, yes, yes. Well, well of course, that was a very important way of getting to know music. There were no CDs. You couldn't go out and buy a Vivaldi concerto on CD. The only way to, to learn a piece was either to make... You had to buy the orchestral material, which was in separate parts, not even a score. And he, have to, he had to either ingest that into his own head and put the score together in his own head, which I'm sure he was capable of doing, or write out a score himself. And in doing so, often, he often made transcriptions of those pieces to play on the keyboard, which was, was also an easy way of getting to know a piece, if you could play it at the keyboard, just in the way that people used to play Brahms and Bruckner symphonies four hands on the piano in the 19th century to get to know the music. And in terms of these concertos with a solo instrument, would Bach have been writing for specific instrumentalists who turned up in the court at Curtin? Very, very popular. Well, the, he, certainly he, he, he had a bunch of uh, players in Curtin, had a specific set number of players in Curtin. But he, like most practical musicians of the time, were, were, was writing for, often for specific people, with specific people in mind, yes. Well, let's meet the soloists plural, because there are more than just a violinist, in this concerto. And from the very beginning, rather than being part of the whole ensemble in the way that we heard the four solos in Brandenburg too, they take a really leading role, establishing all of the musical material, while the strings and continuo basically mark time as they accompany them. So here's the opening, and we'll ask the soloists to wait six bars till they come in, just, and forgive me if this sounds a little rude, just so that we can hear how little the accompanying instruments are really doing. <laughs> Although there are three soloists, one of the first signs that the violin is going to take centre stage is that there are two recorders often act just as one, like in their very, very first phrase. And we're in luck because our two recorder players even have the same name. They're both called Rachel. And during this concerto, what starts to happen is that the violin pushes them out of the way a bit and starts to take centre stage. So imagine, you know, a Vivaldi-type character, red-haired violinist stepping forward to stand in the limelight. Our violinist has black hair. He's Rodolfo Richter. Let's hear where he starts to show off. <laughs> ¶¶ 
which is all pretty tame until he starts to do this. Not to mention what he gets away with in third movement. Word about that third movement. We heard a fugue at the end of Brandenburg II. This is also in a sort of fugal form, this final movement, which is quite interesting in that the violin gets so virtuosic because the virtuosity of a fugue is in writing it, not necessarily performing it. And the whole point of the fugue is that every single participant or ensemble member or line of music can hold the fugue subject. So essentially there's a quality across all of the musicians. But it's fascinating to see how the violinist really sort of leaps out as a soloist in this. And just so that we can follow the fugue in this third movement, when we hear it in full, Richard, could you play the fugue subject so it's recognisable to us? And as you'll hear, it emerges out of the ensemble, slowly from the bass upwards, until the soloists take it up as well. Let's hear the whole of the Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 4 with the soloists, recorder players Rachel Brown and Rachel Beckett, and the violinist Rodolfo Richter.
The Academy of Ancient Music and Richard Egar playing the fourth of Bach's six Brandenburg concertos there. The recorder soloists were Rachel Brown and Rachel Beckett, and the violinist was Rodolfo Richter. You're listening to Discovering Music with me, Sarah Moore-Peach, in which we're discovering the endlessly inventive ways in which Bach approaches the concerto form in three of his Brandenburg concertos. Now, Richard Egar, so far we've had a concerto with four soloists behaving like part of the pack, and we've had another with supposedly three soloists which started to sound a bit like a violin concerto. The identity crisis of Brandenburg V is that it sort of wants to be a harpsichord concerto. Is this really the first time that a harpsichord gets used as a solo instrument in a concerto like this? Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely the first time in musical history that the harpsichord is let out of its subsidiary role as a continuo instrument. What is continuo? A continuo is what I've been doing so far, up to now in, in this program, has been playing chords above the bass line. There are figures which indicate which chords I have to play. So what I've been doing up to now is filling out the harmony above the bass line. Actually, during Brandenburg IV, there were, there were moments, you might have noticed, when my left hand began to free itself even of that line, and I had extra little noodles going on against Joe's line in Brandenburg IV. What happens in Brandenburg V is those noodles multiply rather like a bacteria, very, very rapidly. And Figuration turns into solo lines, which turns into something quite extraordinary in the first movement, about eight minutes in. But I have a written-out part in number five, and it's really the first time in musical history that that happened within a concerto. And is there any sense of why Bach did this? I mean, given that this is a sort of musical CV, he's kind of showing his hand to the Margrave of Brandenburg. He had a competition with a great French keyboard player called Louis Marchand, and Marchand got wind of how good Bach was and ran away. A bit like brave Sir Robin in Monty Python. Um, so the competition never actually happened, but there's a theory that this piece was written for that competition. And can we tell how good a harpsichordist Bach was? Oh, I think from it was absolutely writing. rubbish, no. <laughs> um, he was a, an amazing keyboard player. You have to consider that, that today some of the organ works are still some of the most difficult organ pieces, the trio sonatas particularly, the violin works are still some of the most difficult violin works. He was a pretty good keyboard player. It's, um, it's not always easy to play his music. Sometimes it's a little more easy than others, but it's, uh, it's, it's tricky. So presumably he's saying to the Margrave of Brandenburg, not only can I write amazing music, I can also come to your court as composer yeah. and be a brilliant showy harpsichordist. It's a real, it's a real demonstration of, of his abilities as a young lion of the keyboard, in the same way that Handel was a young lion of the keyboard. Yes, it's very much showing off his digital muscle. By the time we get to the Romantic Concerto, which we um, mentioned at the very beginning of this programme, we get f very familiar with cadenzas, which is at the end of the first movement normally, when the soloist lets rip and has a complete solo passage without any other instruments. Was the cadenza already a, something that, was that we were used to hearing in concertos at this time? In Vivaldi concertos, there are often moments when there are cadenzas of available and poss possibilities for a display in cadenza. Uh, so th this is what happens in the first movement of Brandenburg V, that the, the harpsichord, not, not only does it appear as a soloist, but it's given a huge cadenza of its own in the, at the end of the first movement. Well, I'll let you get back to the harpsichord, which has shifted place 
to allow you to truly shine. Um, and we'll see how it is that Bach gets there. He builds the dramatic tension across the whole of the first movement. So when the harpsichord finally does let rip, it's almost like we've been waiting all eternity for this to happen. It's quite bizarre and yet also incredibly satisfying. So we start off the movement with incredibly strong opening material. I'd say it's the strongest material of any of these concertos. And this is going to play a vital role in allowing the harpsichord to come out. <laughs> So here's that opening phrase as we hear it with the whole ensemble. There are two things that make that striking. First of all, the fact that everyone at the beginning is basically playing the same bit of music all together. Richard, can you just demonstrate that on the harpsichord? And then you also get a sense of emphasis, sort of um, banging away almost from the repeated notes. Thank you very much. Not easy on a harpsichord, actually. It's a very string-like figure, that. Now, it's important for Bach to have that very strong and recognisable ensemble music because the harpsichord is going to keep veering off course. What we've just heard keeps bringing it back to centre and letting us know that we're on safe ground. This first movement is all about the dramatic tension between the harpsichord that wants to break out and that familiar open theme. And that open theme we technically call in music a ritornello, which comes from the Italian ritorno, which literally means to return. So we come back to it again and again. So let's listen to one of the big climaxes, one of them. There are several in this music. It is a moment where you can hear the harpsichord really starting to come through. If you listen, you can hear how the flute and the violin are imitating each other, ratcheting up the tension. And now those two soloists drop down the number of notes that they're playing so the harpsichord becomes more exposed. Now, in case the harpsichord gets carried away, the violin and the flute come in and push notes up a chromatic scale to force it out back to the ritornello again. And that happens a couple of times until finally the harpsichord wins out. And we're not going to hear any of that now, because it's much more fun if you're taken by surprise in the first movement. 
Over the rest of the concerto, although the harpsichord does try it on a couple of times, it doesn't do anything like as extreme as it does in the first movement. But what becomes clear is that the group of three soloists are really ruling the show. Like we've heard in the other concertos, they get left alone by the rest of the ensemble when it comes to the slow movement. Let's hear a little bit of that. The final movement is wonderfully joyous. It's a dance, almost like a jig. And it's the soloists, again, who start it off. This is what they begin with. That harpsichord keeps wanting to come back. Now, we do have time for a few questions, if anybody has a burning question that they'd like to ask Richard about this music. And don't be shy, there's one right up there at the back. What is the history of the harpsichord you've got there? The history of the harpsichord, it was made by Andrew Woodison in Bexley in about 1999. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a copy of a Flemish instrument well, and the Flemish instruments were kind of the Aston Martins of harpsichords in the 17th, the actually end of the 16th, 17th, and even the 18th century. As music got bigger and you literally needed more notes, people kept expanding the keyboard. Rather than throw these Flemish instruments away, particularly those by the Rooker's family, great family dynasty of harpsichord makers from Antwerp, rather than throw them away when they had to get bigger, they just took out the soundboard, which is the heart of the instrument, and built a bigger instrument around it, grafted on extra soundboard if necessary. Um, so this is a copy of, of one of those instruments from the 17th century, a Flemish instrument. I notice that all of these concerti, um, forgive me if I'm wrong, they all seem to have three movements, but earlier concerti grossi might have four or five or six. Is this the point at which the three-movement concerto starts? It's very common at this time to have a three-movement concerto. Fast, slow, fast. That's the usual form. The first concerto, of, of Brandenburg concerto, of course, is different. It has three movements, and then it has an extra set of dances, minuets and trios and polonaises and that kind of thing. So the first one is unusual in that respect. It's a little bit more opulent and, and ear-grabbing from, from that point of view and, and slightly throws, throws off that mould. But basically, at this time, the concerto was a three-movement form. Certainly this kind of concerto, although, for instance, Corelli's Concerti Grossi and Handel's Concerti Grossi were also multi-movement affairs, often with dances, but sometimes with fugues as well. So uh, it, it, nothing was standard at that time, but generally a concerto of this, this kind of concerto was, was three movements, yes. It strikes me that what you were saying before about Bach and the musicians that he had at court and the flexibility of the concerto grosso form means that it's necessarily going to be a much more sort of flexible term and form as it is because you need to be able to, let's say, if you have more violins, double the tutti parts or, you know, lose a few instruments, have it just as a chamber sonata. Yes. 
know, they, they were very practical. And as I say, we, we like, f f for some reason today, we like looking for standardization. We like things to fit in boxes. That, it just wasn't, it wasn't a part of the mindset, as I mentioned earlier. Pitch, we are playing at French Baroque pitch with these concerti, which is a tone, a whole tone lower than modern concert pitch. But pitch was never standard. You could go to a different city and it would be completely different. So by pitch you mean what, every, what the general consensus was, this is an A? Yes, exactly. But there, there was no general consensus and A varied from town to town, from country to country. It, there was no standard, which of course meant if you were a wind player particularly and you, you lived in Halle in Germany and if you went down to the south, somewhere down south in Munich or somewhere, you would have no idea what pitch they were playing at down there. So if you took your recorder or your oboe down there, you would find you'd have to stick bits on or chop bits off <laughs> depending on what pitch they were playing. So it was a... It was a a tricky business. There was no standardisation at that time. And what about temperament? I imagine that quite a lot of people know Bach's keyboard music through his 48 preludes for the well-tempered clavier. And nowadays we play these on a piano normally when we're learning them at home. And a piano, a modern piano, is equally tempered. Can you explain what that means and how that's different to the way in which harpsichords and other keyboard instruments were tuned in Bach's time? We are, we're using quite an early tuning system for this because it's an early, early-ish work of Bach, but also because in the wind concertos, particularly the horn with the horns and the trumpets, it's nice to have something which works for them. But I, I particularly like pushing the boundaries a little bit, particularly for your ears. Today we live in a world where there is equal temperament, where, as you said, the, the difference between all the notes on the keyboard, the 12 chromatic notes, is the same. It's a communist ideal. Um, <laughs> that wasn't the case until, really, music demanded it. Until that point, the tuning of the keyboard was not equal, not... not as a default. So I can show you that very, very clearly, that keys had different, different colours and different effects on people. That's why we talk about key colour and effects of keys. So C major, which will sound like B flat to you, if anybody's got perfect pitch. This is C major. Very restful. I'm now going to go up a semitone to C sharp major. It's very vinegary. It's like poking the eye shape. Each key had a different colour. Each chromatic was what chromatic means, a colour within a, within a semitone. So the, 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 the colours are very, very different of keys. One thing, if, if you did take your recorder from Halle to Munich, you would be able to recognise what key you were in by the general idea of what tuning system was at that time. The, the more normal a key, so C major is a, is a normal kind of key, the easier it would be on the ear. Whereas C sharp, which is an abnormal key... Would, would feel more uncomfortable. So the, the middle movement of the Brandenburg Five, for instance, is marked affettuoso, as in B minor. So we have chords of C-sharp major and F-sharp major in it, which you should feel uncomfortable. It should not be a pleasant experience for you, so I hope it isn't. <laughs> I think we'll leave it there. Let's hear the fifth Brandenburg Concerto by Bach. Thanks to the audience here at the Turner Sims Concert Hall in Southampton for your questions, and also, of course, to the Academy of Ancient Music and their music director, Richard Egar, for helping us discover so much about Bach's Brandenburg Concertos in this edition of Discovering Music. Richard Egar is at the harpsichord, directing the Academy of Ancient Music from the solo instrument, with the flautist Rachel Brown and the violinist Pavlo Beznuziuk for a full performance of Bach's Brandenburg Concerto No. 5. 